Tens of millions of people tuned in to watch the Super Bowl last weekend. While the players faced off on the field, the billionaire team owners who dominate the NFL were, of course, lining their pockets along with executives in the predatory sports betting industry that has exploded in popularity over the last year. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about some of the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today. If you enjoy listening to the show, Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you very much, Brian. Glad to be here. Very, very happy you could join us on this topic. You know, the United States is um, a society that has promoted professional sports, perhaps greater than any other society anywhere in the world. And football, of course, is the number one television sport. It's got college football. We have professional football. Of course, at the end of the day, we have the Super Bowl, which took place on Sunday. And one of the teams won. The Kansas City team beat Philadelphia Eagles by three points. It was a real nail biter. And some of the players were terribly injured, as happens in every game. And there was a lot of drama. And at the end, Kansas City had this great comeback, and they won. And it was considered kind of a thrilling game. And then, Richard, we had seen certain sort of preview shots of the owner families in their respective benches or, you know, suites. That would be the Hunt family for Kansas City and another group of capitalists, another capitalist family in Philadelphia. But right after the game ended, and when the players were hysterical, the the fans were hysterical, commentators were shouting, it was so exciting. The billionaire Hunt family came down. It's the senior Hunt and then the giggling ridiculously rich children of the hunts coming down and they get the trophy and the commentators say, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Your team did great. Congratulations. By the way, in the hunt suite was none other than Elon Musk and, and the commentators, some of whom it was Fox TV, they're owned by Rupert Murdoch. They said, well, look, there's the hunt family 
and Rupert Murdoch and Elon Musk, brilliant minds, brilliant <laughs> minds. And Richard, not only are they brilliant minds, but apparently they're really good at football too, because it was their victory. Yeah, well, you know, hideous, virtually obscene scenarios like this have become normalized in our culture and routinized. But I'm an economist, and so you'll understand if I look at this through the lens, you might say, of an economic analysis. So let's begin with your comment, quite right, that football is a very uh, big thing here in the United States. The way really no other sport is probably anywhere. And that's because capitalists figured out a way to make it unspeakably profitable. Had they not, were they not able to profit from it, we wouldn't be seeing it on the television. We wouldn't be seeing weeks of hype leading up to the Super Bowl. So it's important to understand the economics which doesn't take away from the sporting element or anything else, but it's part of the story and is not a minor matter. Since without what I'm about to explain, we wouldn't be wrapped up in Super Bowls or anything like that. The reason the Hunts and other billionaires buy football teams is because it's profitable to do so. Why is it profitable? Because for them, this is one big advertising operation. What the football game does, if you hype it to society, which we do in this culture in many different ways, then you build audience. You gather, as you said at the beginning of today's program, tens of millions of people whose attention you have for a rather long number of minutes Sunday afternoon or whenever the individual games happen, and as it happened with the Super Bowl. Tens of millions of people staring at their television screens. Okay, this is an opportunity for the Hunt family and all the other billionaires who own these programs to say to advertising agencies, oh boy, have we got an opportunity for you. Any company that wants to sell beer or cigarettes or automobiles or vacations or you name it is now going to be able to put its logo, its picture, its advertising jingle, whatever, in front of an enormous number of people. That they will pay big bucks for. Many millions of dollars for a 30-second spot during that game or during the halftime, which I'm coming to in a moment. This is what this is all about. The game is not the issue. It's the audience whose attention you have, because between plays or between halves, you have a chance to sell advertising to an audience larger than can normally be reached by any advertisement. And there's where the money comes rolling in. The huge money from the biggest corporations in America lining up to get a shot at filling the screen with their own money-making project. 
They don't care about the players. They don't care about the game. They don't even think about it. They're thinking about the money that they can make by translating a large audience into a high price for an advertising 30 seconds. That's, by the way, why we have the halftime. These advertising fellows figured out, wait a minute, we've got a big audience for the football game, maybe, who knows, X million. But then we have this sort of dead space in between. The players have to go off the field. They have to attend to their injuries and hurts and problems and strategize and all that. We have the halftime break. Is there a way for us to avoid two terrible things for us. Number one, that since people are coming for the football game, they won't be paying attention to their television screen in the interval. We can't sell anything then to advertisers because they won't believe that anybody will be watching. And indeed, they won't be because it's you know a boring halftime. Go get a cup of coffee or a beer or chat with your neighbor or whatever else you will do waiting for the second half. So they came up years ago with the idea, no, no, no. Let's try to make an extravaganza that will either keep people watching over the mid the half, or even better, do that, but also draw a whole nother audience that is not particularly interested in football, but would be interested in seeing some superstar or maybe several prancing and singing or whatever it is they do. And then we have an even bigger audience over the whole halftime. Wow, we can sell even more expensively those 30-second slots that are shown then. It will increase our money, which it did in a very significant way, which it did. And so we saw Rihanna in her big red coat on Sunday doing her famous songs and, you know, hyping even further as we learn that she's pregnant and all the rest just to make a bigger extravaganza to sell more advertising at a higher price. And once people understand that, they'll see that none of these people cares that the players are injured, that the overwhelming majority of football, professional football players have serious problems with brain concussions and other consequences of this extraordinarily violent sport. While no effort is ever made to come up with, say, new rules or new ways to play football that would be less injurious, not at all. Anything that threatens to reduce the number of people staring at the TV screen would be unacceptable to the billionaires there. They have to make sure that not much time or effort is spent on brain concussions of football players or anything else that might distract the number of people they need to gather around. So yeah, they are there to make money. All of this depends on the profitability they can squeeze out of it. And we should be aware 
that this is an enormous amount of money, many billions of dollars. And of course, one is never allowed to ask the question, is this really the best thing we can do with the money we have, the resources in our society, given the condition of this society right now? And last point, football, professional football, is a distraction. It takes us away from the humdrum quality of our lives. It allows one of the few kinds of sociability that we still have left in our culture when people get together to watch the game, they say, but it's really to get together and be in a group and have some of that kind of community that is so rare in our culture, which again raises the question, gee, might we do better taking a portion of the money now spent on advertising and all the rest of the football spectacle and doing stuff about the community that we would rather have in our society than the loneliness we have now? But again, because that question isn't profitable, it isn't asked. And we have to think about that. Otherwise, we will get lost in the hype and misunderstand all of the other aspects of the story. Clark Hunt is the owner of the Kansas City team. I keep calling them the Kansas City team rather than their full name because like other NFL teams, the Kansas City team has sort of a racist imprimatur. It's the Kansas City Chiefs. And at the game, Richard, which obviously you didn't watch because you didn't know what time it was on. Right. You thought it was the afternoon when, in fact, it was the evening. So we now know that you, in fact, don't really watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> but the, the fans, the fans are doing the so-called hatchet, the tomahawk. Right. And they're using this sort of, so you have like tens of thousands of non-Indigenous people saluting the team by using the tomahawk chop. Again, it's pretty gross, pretty disgusting. And of course, the players, as you said, the players who are predominantly from working class backgrounds, predominantly from the African American community, who have worked their whole lives to get here, who have struggled so hard, and who are such incredible athletes, the average career in the NFL is about four years. And then Afterwards, people, and there are a few superstars who go longer, but most of the players go about four years, and then they have a lifetime of injuries, a lifetime of pain, and I'm not exaggerating. And the NFL is a league, which is, again, controlled 100% by the owners. There have been big reports out in the last week about how the league, these billionaires, go out of their way to you know, sort of shortchange NFL players who are trying to get compensation for their endless pain and suffering from injuries sustained during the their time as players. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the Hunt family. Clark Hunt is the, I believe, the grandson of W.L. Hunt, who was the oil tycoon, the TV show Dallas in the 1970s was he was the bad guy. He was the rich oil. He was kind of a bad guy and sort of, you know, somebody you love to hate kind of figure. Then his children cornered the the silver market. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. I mean, the Hunt family actually owned more of the world's silver before it was discovered. They owned more of the world's silver 
during this scheme than the governments in the world. His first son, the first son of W.L. Hunt, his name was Hasse, and he was expected to succeed him in control of the family business, but he was lobotomized because he had mental health issues. So they lobotomized him. And then Lamar Hunt took over, and Lamar Hunt actually founded the American Football League, and he was the one who created the Super Bowl. And it was Lamar's two brothers, Bunker and Herbert Hunt, who cornered the silver market. And they also took control, took title of the Libyan oil fields prior to Muammar Gaddafi's revolution that then took the oil away from the Hunt family and nationalized it and allowed Libya to have the highest standard of living in all of Africa. And of course, having done that, Gaddafi had a target on his back right from the get-go. But the Hunt family is the, according to Forbes magazine, the 18th richest family in the world. And, you know, because we do, as you said, Richard, because people want community, they like football, it's exciting, they get a chance to spend time with their friends, they can get beer and chicken wings. And it, it's almost kind of like, it's almost like Christmas or Easter, actually. <laughs> and so people like it because they long for that kind of, you know, sense of community. And anyway, but here you have the capitalist pulling all of the strings and nobody except you, Richard Wolf, on this show, the socialist program, actually talk about it like this. Well, you know, I'm also struck by your comment, because I wasn't aware of it, that there were some comments from the media that sitting in the box were Elon Musk and uh, I don't remember who else you mentioned. Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch. Who owns Fox News and Fox and the Fox commentators who are being paid by Fox, owned by Rupert Murdoch, look up at the box and they look at Rupert and Elon Musk and Clark Hunt and say, there are some brilliant minds. Yes. The brilliant mind of Elon Musk has produced the Tesla automobile company, whose stock collapsed over the last year, indicating that whatever brilliance there was in Elon Musk either was a mirage to begin with or has evaporated out of the two ears on that side of that brain. He also purchased Twitter and has virtually destroyed that institution. It's on the edge of life support. He may even have to sell it, having collapsed its value. Conveying the term brilliant to this character with his innumerable children and partners, why in the world would you do that? What about any of this? I mean, the world needs, because of climate change, because of of a hundred other factors, it cannot rely on the private automobile. And the reason is it uses way too much gas, way too much fossil fuel, way too many resources, and it's a very inefficient, cost-ineffective way of moving people and or goods. We need a mass transportation system. The whole world does. You don't want to replace the gas-guzzling car with another private automobile. What you do is you produce a really good mass transportation system, which many American cities had 100 years ago. You do it with buses and trains and trolleys and all the other mechanisms we have. You don't reproduce a private car. Along comes Elon Musk, 
driven by profit and not by any brilliance of mind? And does he come up with a way to do mass transit in an effective way? No, he comes up with a way of continuing the private individual automobile by making it electric instead of gasoline powered. This is not brilliance. This is crude money-making. The car companies love it because it gives them a few more decades before the need for mass transit trumps, if you pardon my use of the word, this craziness with something else. Using the word brilliance is really a reflection of what you say. The mass media are the paid spokespeople of those who are the richest, and the rest of us should stop pretending that they're anything else. Well, I think you underestimated Elon Musk because, Richard, you forgot this one thing. He was smart enough to be born to Errol Musk, who owned a diamond mine in Zambia. So he was very smart in that way. Yes. He picked the right parents. If you think of brilliance in that way, absolutely. That's the kind of brilliance Elon Musk had. He is the living embodiment of a great film made by the British comedian Peter Sellers. The film is called Being There. If you've never seen it, go look at it. In that film... A mentally challenged gardener who doesn't understand what the world is about, tries to get by by attending to a rich person's garden, ends up being the president of the United States. Because how you get to be that is you need to be at the right place at the right time. And you don't need brilliance and you don't need any of the rest of the make-believe that the people who are at the top want us to believe as a way to justify the position they have and they know that they don't deserve one iota better than the rest of us. And also about Elon Musk, he was born in 1971 in Pretoria. That would be the racist, fascist, apartheid South Africa which allowed his father to get a diamond mine in a nearby African country in Zambia. And that was a country where the white ruling class, Richard, presented themselves as very brilliant, but all of their wealth, all of it, came from the labor of African people. All of it came from their ability to own that which belonged to nature, but which they possessed under the system of capitalism as their private property. So the people who worked the fields, who worked the mines, who worked in the factories in that racist, fascist regime, a regime that at that time had imprisoned Nelson Mandela, it was Elon Musk's father, Errol, and his white ruling class friends who became ever richer. And, you know, that's the thing about capitalism. People always say, Richard, and we're going to end on this, that one of the things, one of the notions, one of the falsities presented about capitalism is that capitalism rewards hard work. It rewards risk-taking. And I'm thinking like, if your father owned a mine, the only people who were risking anything were the workers, the miners who went every day into that mine. They were risking their lives and their health. The capitalists did nothing they literally did nothing except own. They possessed. They were like the slave owners of antiquity or the feudal aristocracy during the Middle Ages. They were the owners, and everybody else did the work. 
But then society, these, as Marxism described it, the superstructure rewards those who possess as geniuses, as cultural contributors. In that sense, this hasn't changed. No, it hasn't changed. And the basic logic really hasn't changed either. In capitalism, there are two ways to earn money, to earn an income. One is to work, to sell your ability to work, to sell your labor power. And that's what the mass of people depend on. But there is a second way to earn money, and that is not by the work you do, but by the assets you own. And the system doesn't care how you got those assets. Did you inherit them? Did you stumble on them? Did you steal them? The storekeeper doesn't care. The storekeeper will sell you what's in the store if you have the money. No questions asked how, where, when, and why you got that money. So we have rich people who long ago learned the way to go is to have assets. Let them bring you an income. Then you don't have to work hard or work at all. If you look at the richest people in the United States, they're not rich because of the work they do. They are rich because of the assets they own. And the only other thing to add, and here I'm borrowing from the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, they didn't allow private property to accumulate in individual hands. And when it came to the most important property of medieval Europe, where the Roman Catholic Church ruled the logic and the laws of the system, they argued this way. God put the land there. God put whatever is under the land, you know, like diamonds or oil. He put that there. God did not human beings. It is the property of all of God's children, not a few of them that were to be stealing what is the commonwealth for themselves. That's not some communist ideology. I'm quoting from the Roman Catholic Church's official doctrine for thousands of years. Yeah, and people, if you want to learn more about some of the foundations of Christianity and prior to it becoming an instrument of ruling class rule, how it was um, in many ways a, a movement of yearning for the return to a society where there wasn't haves and have-nots, I would recommend people read Karl Kautsky's book, The Foundations of Christianity. Really interesting book, especially from a Marxist point of view. Anyway, we'll leave it right there. Richard Wolff... And by the way, I'm not a Kautskyist. <laughs> Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, and he's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolff.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. 
connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 